Dan Schnitzer has always been passionate about renewable energy. In eighth grade, he discovered he could make clean fuel from apple peels using his grandma's pressure cooker. At the age of 23, he was building microgrids in Haiti to bring electricity to rural areas. Then he founded his own company, SparkMeter. It provided smart grid management services in developing countries, and it was named the most innovative company in energy by Fast Company magazine. Access to energy is a type of poverty trap. It's one of these things that keeps people in poverty. And if they had access to modern energy services, maybe that would be a path to escape it. Change is coming, oh yeah. Ain't no holding it back. Ain't no running. Change is coming, oh yeah. I'm Yash Pavlik Slink. And this is Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Today, we'll talk to Dan Schnitzer about how the 36-year-old turned his childhood passion into a business that is trying to eradicate energy poverty and how he made smart meters truly smart for a fraction of the cost of others. Dan, welcome to Degrees. Thanks. Great to, great to be here. First of all, why the heck, as an eighth grader, were you experimenting with apple peels? Did you already know at the age of 12, 13, that you were an environmentalist? Definitely knew I was an environmentalist. I think I was interested in science broadly. Um, my, my mom was a big influence on me when I was much younger. She would take me to um, a pond near our house and we'd collect pond water and I'd look at it under my microscope, which had been uh, a gift, a, a birthday gift uh, from maybe when I was in third or fourth grade. And I needed an eighth grade science fair project. Uh, and so I think I'm, I was aging through uh, a book and there was a section on energy, maybe on renewable energy specifically with some like science fair project ideas. And that one just stood out to me. And I said, you know, I, I want to do that. I want to I learn and understand the process of fermentation. That seems interesting and see if I can make my own renewable fuel. So, Dan, your nerd crafting started with your eighth grade science experiment, but you actually had your light bulb moment when you went to Haiti and when you went to Africa. What took you there and what happened on those trips? Originally, actually, I was taking a class in development economics in college and learned about what, what they call poverty traps, which is you know, these kind of circumstances in people's lives that keep them in poverty. Um, and so one might be like, lack of land ownership. And so they're constantly paying rent to a landlord. So I had this kind of realization that not having access to modern energy services was also a, a form of a poverty trap, but one that I could maybe help um, solve you know, or, or help people use access to modern energy to es escape from poverty. And that, that could be my small contribution. I started going down to Haiti in 2008, and it was on on those first couple of trips that I worked with a local organization in, in the, in this one particular community. And it was an organization of students. And what, what's really one of the things I love about Haiti is that every small town has a little organization that translates to something to the effect of the organization for the improvement of that community's name. And I worked with those groups to first do a survey of, of the entire town. We surveyed 500 households and we found out that people are spending upwards of 10% of their income on things like charcoal for cooking or an additional 10% of income on things like batteries or kerosene 
to light their home. So in, in the U.S., the average household spends less than 1% of their income on electricity for lighting their homes. It might even be less than one-tenth of a percent. That's nothing in comparison. Right. And then you have you know people who are, on average, um, significantly poorer, yet they're spending as a percentage of their income, um, you know, 10 to 100 times more of their income on these really bad fuels and energy services, right? I mean, kerosene, it's dangerous. People's houses burn down sometimes. It's polluting. It creates soot in the air that gets in people's eyes. All of these other knock-on social effects and health effects and environmental effects that are even you know, worse and more costly in the long run um, for these people, in addition to just being really expensive. Dan, when you were only 23, you built microgrids in Haiti. Can you explain at an eighth grade level, which is where I am in my understanding of microgrids, what are microgrids? So basically what a microgrid is, is it's local generation with a local distribution system. And in, in the US, we often talk about that in an interconnected sense, like that that microgrid is connected to the, the macro grid um, and it's kind of there for backup um, or for providing other support to the grid. But in the context that I work in, in emerging markets and developing countries, microgrids are, are typically more standalone. There's no macro grid that's reaching these remote villages or communities or towns. It's really just the grid that's there is the microgrid, which just means that there's basically one source of generation that's being distributed through a small grid to people locally. And you need microgrids to mitigate potential failures of getting energy to people who need it when they're in a moment of disaster. Is that right? I think that's the U.S. context. So that would address the issues like with fire season and hurricane season um, and cold snaps in Texas disrupting the, the power supply. But it's addressing not a potential failure in emerging markets. It's, it's addressing a real failure Right, which is the failure of of the macro grid as we built it out in the U.S. That macro grid hasn't been built in a lot of countries in emerging markets. So, you know, we, it, uh, across sub-Saharan Africa, half the population or, or fewer don't have access to electricity. These countries in emerging markets that don't have that kind of money, basically, they they don't they can't fund the build out of a massive national grid the way that we did in the United States over a series of decades from the 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way up until basically 1980 was when we stopped, you know, we, we reached universal electrification in the US. Um, and so that's where microgrids are solving that problem today, where the grid hasn't built, been built out, it's not going to get built out. And so we need some other way to provide these towns, you know, sometimes with hundreds or even thousands of households with access to electricity. Really helpful context and and really interesting to recognize the differences in the need for microgrids and the functionality for microgrids in different parts of the world. Um, so you went to Haiti, you've been to Africa, you've thought about these types of problems and inequities when it comes to energy access. But why did you decide that this was something that you wanted to work on? equitable energy access. I heard that you once built a hipster space monitor for an art party in DC. So I feel like you're probably one of those people where your career could have gone in a much different direction, maybe a wide variety of directions. Why choose energy? 
I don't know exactly, but it, it is just this thing that I fell in love with when I was 12. I, I think I was always a science nerd, a physics nerd. And from a very early age, my mom told me that I could be anything I want. You know, I could do anything I want to do as long as it helped others. And she gave me a pass, which was if, if I became a film director, that would be the exception to the rule because she, she loves <laughs> movies. But other, other than that, I had to work in, in a career that, that would in some way help others. And it was really because I think she was onto this whole thing about you know, privilege and adversity that is now kind of a more common conversation that, that we're having today. Um, but that she started talking to me about you know, when I was, I don't know, probably seven or eight years old, um, telling me that I was lucky to be born into a middle-class family and in the richest country in the world. I feel like she probably started talking to you about that at age two, or maybe while you were still in the womb, but you just remembered it at age seven or eight. That is probably true. I'll have to ask her about that. And I, I think that that was really something that stuck with me. Um, so I guess I just did, I saw it a ethical, uh, it was sort of an ethical question of like, how am I going to spend my time? And there is a moral component to that, which is, well, you know, I, there is, you know, almost like a sense of moral obligation that we should be spending in our time in a way that is constructive in helping to improve people's lives. There's a long history of development working to help people, but in ways that really didn't go well. And as, as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, this technology is fascinating, but your company works mostly abroad. So for the average American listener, why should they care about what SparkMeter is working on? The climate problem is a global problem. The emissions that come you know, from Nigeria in, into the atmosphere uh, are going to have the same effect on climate change as as the emissions here. The vast majority of the places where our meters are installed are places that had no access to electricity whatsoever. There was no grid. So our customers are energy companies who are putting in the generation system, usually solar. They're putting in the poles. They're putting in the wires. They're wiring up people's homes. And so before that, people were typically using kerosene and candles to light their homes they might be using battery-powered devices, battery-powered radios or TVs or lights. Batteries are really expensive. They're also you know, pretty bad for the environment when people discard them. Or some of the wealthier households or businesses might have a generator. They're actually usually powered by gasoline. They're super dirty. They're super noisy. Um, people hate using them. And there was a report that came out a couple of years ago that said that there are 30 million of those generators in use by people who have a grid connection, but where it's a really low quality grid connection, the emissions from those 30 million generators is equal to a thousand coal-fired power plants. That's shocking. That's shocking. Yeah. And so one thing that I'd love to implore your any of your listeners who end up going into climate technology or um, climate technology investing is to remember that this isn't a United States problem. This is a global problem. And so we, we absolutely need to care um, about this and also that helping people get access to clean electricity just has such huge knock-on and benefits from people's personal development, personal freedom and opportunity that I, I think that it is kind of a, 
an ethical question, moral question as well. From the conversations with your mom around the breakfast table about how to use your talents and your gifts and your experiences to what you do now, your company, SparkMeter, provides tools that strengthen reliable energy access to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. How exactly does this technology work? Our technology really addresses three big problems. And so the three problems are, one, how do you collect a large number of really small payments from people um, who are trying to pay for electricity in remote places, right? So like collecting payments is, requires the business to do something. You don't want the thing for the business to do to be so expensive that they're actually spending more money trying to collect these payments than the money that they're earning from the payments. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was how do you remotely monitor these systems so that you can see if there is a problem, like you, you, you make money as a business by selling this electricity. If your system has a problem and it's not generating electricity or people aren't able to use electricity, you're losing money on, on this asset. And then the third issue is intelligent load management, which really just means that there is one source of generation that's powering this microgrid and you want to make sure that no single person is going to use so much energy that there's no energy left over for anyone else. And so smart metering solves all three of those problems. The issue was that the existing approach to smart metering was really designed for really big utilities in rich countries. And that I'm just going to yeah. jump in. So smart metering is really what Spark Meter is offering. What is smart metering? So smart metering, it involves being able to read electricity meters remotely, right? So you want to be able to see how much energy are people consuming because you want them to pay for the energy that they've consumed. So the ability to get that data from the meter without having to send someone to physically read the meter, that would be a, a pretty core part of smart metering. So just jumping in, I became a homeowner recently. So this is essentially replacing the meter reader that comes to my house every so often because all of that data is being captured in exceptionally remote places, sending it back, monitoring it for problems and bringing it back to the provider to basically provide accurate billing um, and maintain energy in really faraway places. Yeah, I mean, that should really be like the most basic use of smart metering. There's a whole other you know, universe of applications that you can think of if you have all of this data coming back to the utility or come back to the energy company in real time. Um, the way that the energy company can respond to outages could be radically different. So there are some utilities that still depend on their customers calling them to tell the energy company that they don't have power. So if you had smart metering, you could potentially actually see in, in near real time when people don't have power and where they're located. So you can actually use that data when we combine it with what we know about the grid itself to maybe do some predictive things. Maybe we can be more proactive. Maybe we can see, oh, you know what? It looks like based on this data that we're getting back, it looks like this line has a tendency to get congested, or it looks like this transformer has a tendency to get overloaded, or there maybe there are some other like weird things that we're seeing on the system that make that part of that system particularly vulnerable or weak to environmental conditions. 
that's what Spark Meter actually does, right? It's the smart meter that you're providing offers so much more information than the ones that we're familiar with in the U.S., as an example. I think it's that we're giving more context to it. We're, we're also providing the software and the communications. So it makes it really the value that we provide to, to the energy companies that we serve is that our whole system is plug and play. And what you would normally go out to buy for smart metering today, it's basically a huge IT project. And for you know, people who work in IT, you know, they know it, it's really slow, it takes forever, and it's super expensive. And with our system, it's more like buying a Nest thermostat or an Amazon Echo you know, Alexa thing, where it's like, you plug it in, you turn it on, you log into the software, you, you see your devices there, you didn't have to do any configuration, you didn't have to do any networking, you didn't have to like, you know, hire an IT consultant from Accenture to help this, you figure this thing out. So that's what using our system is like, is really you should be able to get set up with our system as an energy company in like 10 minutes, not a year. I'm curious now how many smart meters you have out there, understanding that a lot of your customers are abroad. Um, what's your and what's your goal for, say, the next five years as as you want to grow that number? So we've sold now about 200,000 smart meters. We have over 40 uh, customers. So each of our customers is a utility. So we have over 40 customers in 25 countries mostly sub-Saharan Africa and then parts of Asia. And I think the vision is really that we'll start selling more and more meters to some of the bigger utilities. Uh, We traditionally sold to these microgrid utilities um, that are doing sort of village by village electrification. Where we're starting to go is starting to sell more to the bigger incumbent, maybe more urban utilities that maybe have 50% losses. So 50% of the electricity that they're distributing they're not collecting revenue on. And so as a result, if they're not able to collect that revenue, they're not able to pay their bills. If they can't pay their bills, they don't have enough energy to supply. They don't have the budget to provide good maintenance. So a lot of these utilities are maybe providing electricity only, uh, let's say, 12 to 16 hours a day. And so we want to work with them because that's also an energy access problem. A lot of people think about energy access in the context of the billion people who don't have any access to electricity at all. But there is another 2 billion people that the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, characterizes having a connection, but it's a connection to a weak or broken grid. And so I think that's the other part of where we're going in, in these markets is, can we heal and fix these weak and broken grids using our technology? And what failures are you working through now? I, I mean, this technology is very much in progress. I can't imagine that it's perfect. Um, otherwise, we'd be scaling maybe at a different rate. So tell me about what you're troubleshooting in this moment. So, you know, it's it's not always about the technology um, that, that creates the challenges. So when, one of the big challenges that we've seen for, for the sector generally is financing. And for the microgrid utilities, this a utility business model is not the same as you know building an app and you're you know cash flow positive in year one. It's a, a very long term play. And in the U.S., just a quick side note on history: it was the New Deal uh, that created a rural electrification agency under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and it was that agency that really is responsible for why we have 100% electrification in the U.S. The government provided for 20 years 
very low interest loans to distribution and generation utilities to build projects in the parts of America where the, the for-profit companies were not. And then for another 20 years after that, they provided loan guarantees to banks so that banks could finance those projects. And so it was this very long 40-year process, but it was backed by US government low-cost financing and de-risking. And I don't see something comparable to that happening internationally at the level that it needs to happen. We need way more of this low-cost concessional financing and way less of this like, oh, these companies should be profitable. And it's like, well, th this is a social good that, that we're going after. We want these companies to be doing it. So let's, let's find the money to, to give them the financing. From SparkMeter's perspective, we are working on having a finance facility, a project finance facility for um, the existing utilities to buy our meters and then to basically be able to, to lease them from us over the course of three to five years. Because a lot of these utilities are cash strapped. And so some listeners might be thinking, well, you're selling this product to utilities that are losing money. How are they supposed to buy them from you? They don't have cash. They don't have good credit. They can't go to the bank and buy it. And so we are starting to offer them credit financing for them to be able to buy meters from us. And then they pay us out of the collections that they're receiving from, from their customers. I appreciate that supportive model and you being so candid about sort of where the gaps are in scalability right now. I think that's a that's a good, healthy criticism or critique to have on the industry and to to really give our listeners that perspective and are also wondering how they can make an impact in a similar way. Now, you started in this field as a consultant on various projects, a role that is often very lucrative and flexible and you can follow your passions. Why did you drop that to create your own company, SparkMeter? I, I think also from a young age, uh, I, I was pretty like set on starting a business and, and specifically an, an energy business. I like had this multi-year plan from when I was pretty young that I would, after going to college, I'd work in the energy industry for two years. I don't think I really knew what that meant when I was in middle school or high school. And then I would go and do my PhD, sort of focused on something related to energy. And then I would start my own business. And then at some point in the future, I would become Secretary of Energy. That was kind of like the the end of the road was, was that's, that's where I wanted to end up. Is becoming the future Mr. Secretary of Energy still a plan? Should Jennifer Granholm be worried about her job? I think she's doing great. I wouldn't want to see her end her term early for my sake. I don't know if she has that authority anyway. Um, <laughs> if it happened, that would be cool. But I, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. Most people would think that someone with your intelligence and your education wouldn't face many struggles. What challenges have you faced in your career that would surprise people listening to this? No matter what, I think what we're trying to do is really difficult. And so I think that the challenges that I've run into is the market that we're serving. I mean. Most of the investors that I talk to about investing in our company say no because of the markets that we're working in. You know, if we had the exact same business model and we were working in the United States, I don't think that, that would be the case. Um, so it has been really, really hard, I think, for everybody in this market who is trying to provide access to electricity using a private for-profit business model because the nonprofit model hasn't worked great. It needs to be from the, the private sector. Um, but finding money, finding that investment is a huge, huge challenge. 
Now I have some quick and dirty personal questions that we're asking all of our guests. So you have to choose one or the other. Are you ready? Sure. Mountain or beach? Beach. Pet or plant? I mean, so much, so much of this is like what's practical, but I mean, my apartment is full of plants and I don't have any pets. So I got to, I guess I got to go plant. You got to go plant. All right. Final one, power or money? Oh, um, probably would take the money over the power. Interesting. Tell me why. I think that money can be, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not there yet, so I don't know for sure, but it can certainly be an enabler. It can really enable a, uh, a certain lifestyle where you don't have to necessarily worry about that anymore. And that, that seems kind of nice. Thank you so much for being on Degrees. Dan Schnitzer is the founder and CEO of SparkMeter Inc. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks, Josh. In the next episode of Degrees. Uh, when I walked in, he was like, oh, it's so pleasant to have a, a young, nice female uh, present in the room. <laughs> He meant it as a compliment. We've all been there, right? But anyway, I thought, okay, I need this person to take me seriously. So I, instead of signaling that I'm listening, I just sat back into my chair and, you know, spread my legs. And I was like, yeah, you know what? We'll talk to Ten Kwan. She's from South Korea and now works in Switzerland, fighting what she calls the pale, male and stale to grow sustainable finance. And that's it for this episode of Degrees. You can find links to the resources in this episode and the entire series in your listening app. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Amy Morse is our producer. Our executive producers are Rick Ballou and Christina Mestre. Podcast Allies is our production company, and I am your host, Yesh Pavlik-Slink. But the foundation of the show is you. Share this episode with a friend and find your planet-saving career together. Thanks for listening. Change is coming, oh yeah. Hey.